Uh, there's nothing I'm going to say tonight that's particularly original. You can get it in countless books. Uh, what's more valuable <clears throat> is for you to use it as an opportunity to practice mindful listening. I notice you're about to take notes. I don't want to prohibit you, but I would strongly suggest that isn't anywhere nearly as valuable as practicing listening. And you'll find the mind, uh, the main way, at least that I've learned how to listen, to whatever degree I have, is by seeing how I don't listen. How my mind has, I like, I don't like, I agree with that. That sounds a bit like, what well, that isn't Vipassana, etc. And you get a word here or there. So this is your practice. I'm doing my practice. This is my yogi job. Michael uh, has been doing his yogi job, Sarah as well. Our job is teaching, your job is learning, but we're all in it together. So thank you, you don't feel insulted or anything. Good, good. Deprived. What? Deprived. <laughs> no, no. One day in Tsarist Russia, an old rabbi is taking a walk. Those of you who don't know about the times, uh, Tsarist Russia was not exactly a place where Jews were welcome. And this rabbi was taking a walk and a Tsarist policeman comes up to him and says, confronts him and says, Rabbi, where are you going? And the rabbi says, I don't know. The policeman says, what do you mean you don't know? Come on, where are you going? He says, I don't know. And he asks him for a third time. Finally, he says, you're giving me a hard time, aren't you? Okay, we'll have to teach you a lesson. Takes him, puts him in jail, and as he closes the, the cell door, and the rabbi looks through the bars with a smile on his face and says, you see, you just don't know. Get it? <laughs> um, some of you who know me, uh, like up until a few minutes ago, I, I didn't know what to talk about. I knew it had something. I, look, the rabbi had some direction. He was walking somewhere. Uh, I knew I had to come down to this room, and I knew that it had to have something to do with sitting and yogi jobs. I knew that, and daily life on the retreat and how that relates to the rest of our life. And uh, it sort of ended there. And then uh, an idea came up of brainwashing. Uh, vipassana practice and brainwashing. What? So is Vipassana an, another way of brainwashing you? Could be. Anything can be. But my memory of uh, brainwashing uh, it may have an earlier history, but uh, my recollection is it began with the Korean War, where uh, soldiers came back and had been who had been captured by the uh, North Korean communists and brainwashed. 
And that, that term has been used in a very derogatory sense. And I've used it many times, and people have, when, we, when many of us got very interested in these uh, spiritual activities, they were saying, be careful, they're all, these gurus, they just want to brainwash you. And I say, don't worry, I'll be careful. And I did get brainwashed once. Uh, then I reflected on it, and brainwashing is a very, very beautiful term. Why do they p- pick on brainwashing and turn it into something that's terrible? And Vipassana is brainwashing. It's washing your brain, cleaning it. We'll get to what? So, uh, in Dharma discourse, there are two kinds of language. There's everyday language, you could call it conventional language, which we all use so we can communicate, and then Dharma language. Dharma language often has a different meaning and a deeper meaning. And sometimes uh, it's called twilight language, and that's mainly poetry. A lot of the ancient uh, teachings were presented in poetry or parables, uh, where it was felt that that could, because the words have limits, definite limits, and they're designed to take us to that which is prior to the words, before thinking. So, can we use language to take us beyond language? And whether you know it or not, that's part of why you're here. We'll we'll get into what I mean by brainwashing in a moment. Um, We're here, uh, you've already started cleaning out your brain. Just a simple activity of following the breathing in, out, in the, whole, in the whole body. And the instructions, as I think they're fairly simple. Some of you were not clear on it. I hope we can clarify some of that. Um, what are we doing there? Why, uh, why are we uh, bothering to calm the mind, steady the mind so it can be more clear? Uh, as far as I can tell, the cutting edge of Vipassana, which, which is insight, it means clear seeing, exceptional seeing accurate seeing, seeing things as they actually are. That's the cutting. Without that, uh, Vipassana would just be a a lot of very nice uh, ideals to follow. So seeing is crucial uh, in in, what's called insight meditation, seeing into. Uh, So when we follow the breathing, we're trying to, we're getting the mind ready so that it's fit and able to take a look at what sometimes is not so easy to look at ourselves. I mean, if we really wanted to look at ourselves, I mean, the human race, that is, things wouldn't look the way they do. I would say that self-discovery is not exactly burning a, a, burning a hole in of, of, that of excitement. Uh, I don't think, see any uh, CNN doing shows on Repeat, retreats at IMS and just half an hour people sitting still. Um, so the, the heart of it has to do with seeing clearly and accurately. And let me uh, just quite simply, um, if you don't, okay, let me use two very ancient images from India. One is when a pickpocket sees a saint all he sees are pockets. 
Get it? It's okay to, you know, you can be happy on a retreat. <laughs> it doesn't have to be grim and joyless. With, that doesn't mean it's spiritual. Of course, being funny doesn't mean it's spiritual either. Um, now, that's functional, according to that gentleman's occupation. He's a pickpocket. But there's another one which is getting much closer to what we're getting at. Why we have to, we're beginning even just simply being with an in-breath and out-breath and all the being mindful throughout the day. Uh, why that's so vital to get free. Um, <clears throat> in this uh, teaching story, uh, it's dusk. The sun is going down, so it's not com- there isn't complete light. And there are two versions of it, two uh, examples. One is you mistake a rope for a snake. It's just a rope. And you get all excited, hysterical. You start screaming and everyone in the village goes crazy and starts running and grabbing their children and hiding because it's a poisonous snake. And it turns out that it's just a rope because you didn't see it clearly. And so the fact you saw it, how you, how you saw it, and then identified with what you saw as being real, that led to action. And the action was not constructive. It was not skillful. It was not useful. It was not helpful. What if it was the other way around? What if it's really a snake and you see it as a rope? And then you just say, oh, ha, ha, it's just a rope. Well, then there's the consequences could be even more dire. So why the mind has to be clear is because in order to get free, you have to begin to see, as far as I can tell, uh, we're learning how to clean the mind of what? That's why I think brainwashing is a beautiful term. We have to wash it of what? We have to wash it of all its accumulations, all the conditionings, our history, our memories, the school we've been to, the culture, ethnic. Uh, We have to, in some way, not necessarily kill that, but understand that it's conditioned, it's kind of, it's mechanical. And some of it is good, and it's fine to retain it, like brushing your teeth. You should please keep doing that if you got trained to do it as a child. But, but here we're learning how to do it consciously. Um, so there, there's that uh, looking at the brain, seeing, uh, seeing how it's conditioned. And... The, when, we, when we work with the breath, we're beginning to enable the mind to see what's going on. Now, if you look at all the magnificent accomplishments of the human race, which have to do with clear seeing, telescopes, which see up into the heavens, microscopes, which, which see cells, um, having recently had a colonoscopy, little telescopes that go into you-know-what, and you, and, you can even, and you can even watch yourself on TV. But it was very boring. To me it was. I thought I wanted to watch it, but... Um. <laughs> uh, and now all kinds of uh, equipment that can photograph things. In other words, the ability to magnify, to have the strength of, of to be able to see clearly. And so, from the point of view of brainwashing. What is it that we're washing? In Buddhist language, it's the kilesas. The kilesas are usually translated as defilements. 
I personally don't think that's a good term. I think it's archaic and has a kind of moralistic, righteous, self-righteous tone of being defiled. It's left over from times gone. I, and other, other aspects, some Buddhist schools translate it as poisons, the, the three poisons. You've heard them. Well, you may have. Uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, and all their children, which are many, there are many children. The mind's tendency to want things, want, 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 and was a bottomless. The mind's uh, aversion, the mind's tendency to not want, to annihilate, to get rid of, to disagree with, uh, conditioned. And uh, the third one is, is ignorance or delusion. They're all, actually, that's the root, is that we don't, for example, um, one meaning of ignorance is that is to ignore. Uh, so if we've been ignoring how our own mind works and how it works not just sitting on a cushion, but how it works in the midst of every aspect of life, uh, if we've ignored that, how could that, uh, of course that's going to lead to unhappiness. We're going to mistake what we see. We're not going to see accurately. And if we don't see accurately what we think and what we say and how we act is going to be based on faulty data. The data that's coming in is not what's going on. But we are typically we're quite confident. We think we're seeing the world and then we identify with this faulty data and then you have planet Earth looking the way it does. But I think greed, hatred, and delusion, which the Buddha f formulated pushing towards 3,000 years ago, is not out of style. It's alive and well. And just the stakes have become higher because of the brilliance of science and technology. Look how little energy, though, has gone into what we're doing here. It's not to er eradicate uh, what science has accomplished, this clear seeing. Uh, but it's uh, to redress uh, the, the, the way in which energy has been apportioned so that at least some of the energy goes into self-awareness. Now, that has to start in the culture. I mean, particular individuals, we're all here. Something is happening. I, I'm not being messianic, but people are getting more interested in it. But if the, the culture has to see that as a value, something that's important, so children are brought up, to understand that understanding yourself is part of your education. Not just being, in other words, it's a different definition of intelligence. It's not that rational, deductive, logical gathering of knowledge, is that, which typically means a person's intelligent. That still holds. That's a form of intelligence, but it's not the only intelligence. So then there's a form of intelligence that typically we're not aware of. And that's when the mind becomes silent. And you, those of you who are new, you can listen to me and maybe it'll sound far-fetched and fanciful, but at least allow for the possibility that there may be some truth. It could be that I'm deluded. You know, I've been doing this stuff for pushing 40 years. Not only that, this is what I do. So of course I think it's great. So if you have a little bit of skepticism, that's healthy. But that isn't cynicism. Cynicism, we just, everything is baloney. Many things are, have you noticed? Maybe most. But there's some things that really aren't. And if we miss that, how sad. Okay, so what, 
It's not that I discovered it. It's been known by countless people over thousands of years, long before the Buddha and in other religions, that there's a depth uh, to the magnitude of what makes up a human, a human, that is goes well beyond that part of the brain that does thinking, and you can include em- the emotions. Now we even know that the brain is just barely being used, but in Dharma language, the, the brain, there's something more subtle in the brain. The brain is a vehicle used, but you don't have to agree or disagree. The point is, there's another form of intelligence. Once the mind washes out all the uh, likes and dislikes, uh, all the achilleses, all the different mental toxins, where the mind is distorting what it sees because of its presuppositions, it wants, it doesn't want, or it's, it's confused. So if it ignores what's happening, then perhaps if you turn it around and start paying attention, if ignoring what happenings produces suffering, dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, and words like that, if you read the Buddha, they're used over and over again. What if we turn it around, and instead of ignoring what's going on, our, uh, the interior life, uh, we start to pay attention to it and also how that affects how we speak and act and begin to learn that there's a cause and effect relationship going on here. That somehow we're the architects of our life. To some degree, we're making it up and we attribute something really solid out there. You know, look, that rabbi was put in jail because he didn't know where he was going. Aren't we in jail? But it's not here. I hope not. Maybe the beginners, it may feel that way. For <laughs> And with the snow, you're really stuck here for a while. Our, mi- our mind is the prison, an unexamined mind. It's in the West, too. It's in Socrates, where he laments. An unexamined mind is uh, it's, uh, tragic in terms of living a life where no energy is used there. Now... What has been discovered by countless people, often called yogis, is that when the mind becomes silent, that awakens another kind of intelligence. It's not in words. Uh, This intelligence knows. This is the real insight. The real insight, there's no thought in it. There are insights that are helpful, and thinking is very helpful, moving us along the path. At a certain point, Uh, You don't need it, and it's even an obstacle. And in this stillness, the stillness of the mind, things that we label compassion or uh, uh, good judgment or or, uh, truth, uh, I have to use words, but it doesn't come out in words. But you find, even if you just tap it a wee bit, you find that you're a little bit kinder. You're more alive. You see... Uh, life in a very, very different way, like in ancient China, someone came back, no, in Japan, someone came back from China and uh, had attained enlightenment in China and was asked, well, what did you learn? What, what is enlightenment? And the person said, the sky is blue and the grass is green. What? How could that be of any? I already know that. But do we? Probably we've all had moments when life is so vivid so we're so alive, but it doesn't last. It's episodic. And then we take substances to try to 
get there. But is that really going to do us much good? So far, it doesn't seem so. Um, okay, so this is what we're doing. Now, how do, you, how do you tap that silent mind? Well, it's through brainwashing. In a sense, to make it brief, a lot of what Vipassana, Vipassana is not about addition, it's about subtraction. You know, we use terms like self-knowing, self-understanding, uh, finding out who you are. But finally, you'll see it's finding out who you aren't. It's not about finding out who you are because as you start to watch the mind, the mind produces all kinds of notions about itself. For example, maybe you've had a few. You're no good at this. What did you bother even coming here? These other people, look how still they are. They're like, they're like Buddha's statues. You're not cut out for this. You know, go back to your day job. Whatever. Uh, and then you believe it. And if you make I'm no good, then you have I'm, I'm no good. So don't make, we're learning how not to make anything. To just see the mind, it's like a little machine producing a dream factory, producing notions about yourself. The story of me and mine starring me. <laughs> Written by me, produced by me, directed by me. Gaffer, me. All those other little, you know, now it goes so on and on. Who wants to know who the gaffer is? Do you want to know who the gaffer is? Maybe if it's a relative. Does anyone have a gaffer relative? I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. You do? Sorry, I apologize. What is it? Does anyone have a gaffer? Okay. Um, okay, so uh, getting the mind ready to do this, how, how do you do it? What, what, what's happening? Uh, what's the soap? Like, if seeing, improving the power of seeing, in this approach, you know, that is, if you go to the sciences and the technological brilliance that has accomplished so much through in intensification of seeing, magnification of seeing, uh, microscopic, you know, into the oceans, the sky, everywhere, it's extraordinary. Okay, how do we accomplish that when it comes to our own heart? How do we accomplish that? Well, maybe right at this moment, pharmaceuticals are working on some chemical that will just empty the mind, cleanse it. You don't, oh, you don't have to waste time, three-month retreats and two-month retreats, going to Asia, getting sick. You know, just, you know, maybe there are pharmaceutical companies busily at work now. They see, hey, these people seem to be going to, they like that stuff. Let's see if we can cook up something for them. Maybe there'll be a pharmaceutical drug that will clear the mind. Wow, great. But then they'll need another one which brings it back when you need it because we're not throwing thought out. We're not throwing that other kind of intelligence out because it's essential. So then there'll be the first one with side effects, longer, you, you know. And then in order to correct it, but then we have to start thinking again, like you have to fill out income tax. You know, you have to know one plus one equals two if your mind is just a blank. Which, by the way, emptiness is not blank in Buddhist. When the mind is still and clear, it's hardly blank. It's, it's charged with a very, very, very subtle, a very, very subtle form of life is activated. It's always there. We're not in touch with it because we're so preoccupied running after our tail, trying to improve who we think we are, get away from who we think we were, to get to a better one, you come here because if you sit long enough, then you really get to a good one, good who you think you are. <laughs> well, 
This isn't good for business, but I doubt it. Um, okay, so then, if that isn't it, what is it? How, how, what is the, uh, how do we uh, wash the brain? Wash the brain of all that's known, K-N-O-W-N. And that doesn't mean get rid of it, by the way, in Dharma, in Dharma language. It's through the seeing itself. Uh, yeah, there's an unusual teaching that's helped me tremendously. I received it about many years ago, well over 30, in Thailand, in the forest tradition, Ajahn Buddhadasa, a wonderful, wonderful human being and a great teacher. And he uh, sometimes taught it in different ways, but he would cite the Buddha for everything he said. He would always cite the Buddha. In one case, if I can remember the quote, it's pretty fairly accurate, I hope. One is, um, birth is, un- is uh, uh, unending suffering. No, it's continuous suffering. Birth, whoa, pretty harsh. And then another one, he would juxtapose these two, say, true happiness is dissolving the false notion of I. Not, not the physical I, the letter I, me, dissolving it. Well, then he can't. So then, is life that terrible that uh, just to get born? Well, there's no question if you get born, you're going to have pain. If you don't want any pain, and as you get older and older, and you get more pain, the thought occurs to you that you really don't like pain if you had, didn't have it earlier. But if you don't want pain, don't get born. It, it comes with it. The, the Chinese, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, they're here with us. We have to learn that's what makes life, makes up life. Okay, so what do we do with that? Um, I think the early stages of senility have settled in. Who can bring me back to where I was? Anyone? How do you wash the brain? What? Yes, very good. Thank you. Um, the mind uh, throws up all these notions about who, who you, we are. Uh, these are the kalesas. And, uh, oh, it was Buddhadasa's quote. When we hear birth is perpetual suffering, continuous suffering, we tend to think of it, and this would be everyday language or conventional language, as birth from a mother and that a physical birth, and that if you get physically born, then of course it's inevitable there's going to be suffering. Uh, but it's saying endless suffering, perpetual suffering. But uh, that's ordinary language. In Dharma language, this is the teaching of Ajahn Buddhadasa. There are others who agree with him. I'm one of them. What it means is not outer birth. It's not physical birth of a, of a physical body. It's the birth of me. Selfing. It's the birth of this notion that I. And then, uh, in other words, what is being said here is that's the root cause of our sorrow, is that the sense of, it's in, in a sense, egocentric, egocentricity is born. It's self centered notions, self cherishing. When that gets born, with it inevitably is suffering. When you're suffering, if you look closely, you'll see who's suffering. I am. 
And if you look at it, you'll see that me is being hurt, insulted, and sometimes me feels great. But does it last? So it's born and dies. Born, it dies. All day long we're born and dying according to this understanding in Dharma language of the meaning uh, birth. But then the second quote, and in his teaching, Buddha Dasa, it's, they're meant to be seen together. And he said, true happiness. In other words, there's no denying that there are sources of happiness in life. Of course there are. But true happiness, and that's what all spiritual practice is about. It's not unique to Buddhism. True happiness is eradicating or dissolving this false notion of I. And this, perhaps you've heard of, it's sometimes called emptiness. Uh, the crown jewel of the Buddhist teaching is emptiness. Empty of what? Because it doesn't, there isn't a good English word for it, shunya or shunyata, but sometimes it's called void. That's to me worse. That's like null and void. But empty means empty of what? An empty of attachment to me and mine. Empty of attachment to me and mine. So that if this notion of I comes up, but it's accompanied by awareness, then it's not a birth in this sense, and there is no suffering. If it's not accompanied by awareness, then it's a form of delusion, because what has come up is a notion that we identify with, believe in, and then we're destined to suffer because of it. If anyone looks at you the wrong way or says something, we can be hurt. There any, we all have been hurt, haven't we? Um, psychological suffering is what I'm talking about, not physical. Okay, so what the Buddha, if you put those two together, then uh, what's in the mind, it's when you see it, when you see what the mind is doing, when awareness accompanies the productions of the mind, it's like it takes the poison out of it. It just, the mind produces a notion. It just comes out of the brain. It's like secreted like a digestive juice. We have no control over it. It's a condition, it's conditioned, it's reactive, it's mechanical. We can't help ourselves. We have been conditioned. Like just watching the Olympics was great fun for me. I'm not so big on what was going on, but it was, a, it was an incredible study of this. You know, each country, you know, the music and the flags and the pride and what number were you and people, you know, representing their country and finally Slovenia won something and, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but some of it you could see it was life or death. Now, does that mean we have to get rid of all the countries and get rid of all religions, get rid of all ethnic groups? Some would say so that that's the cause of suffering. But it seems to me it's the attachment, the identification with it and the attachment that causes the suffering, not the particular uh, activity, for example, that you're performing, or who you are. For example, uh, there's the suffering of being a millionaire. There's the suffering of being a beggar. In 1929, when the stocks, stock market crashed, there were millionaires, now that then it was a lot, now I suppose you have to say billionaire. Uh, people jumped out of the window because they were so identified with the notion that they were their money, that they, their life was over, and they took their life. Wow. If that isn't delusion, what is? In other words, you need something outside of yourself to attach to so that you feel you exist and you're okay. So that... If someone ha is a billionaire 
and is attached to it as part of their identification. They're walking around thinking that. I don't think it's such a happy place to be. There's always someone richer. There's always con uh, an obsession with getting more and more, as we see. Uh, There's not a political statement. People from both sides say it. But I do have a political view, of course. So uh, if, what, what if you're a beggar? If you're walking around as a beggar, feeling sorry for yourself, self-pity, thinking you're this, you're that, pe the way people see you, you're going to suffer the suffering of a beggar because you've made beggar in your mind. I am a beggar. And with that comes... Now, supposing you don't make that, supposing the mind is cleansed, washed clean of that identification, then you're just, you're a beggar, but it's not necessarily any psychological suffering. Look, I know that it's a little naive what I'm saying, because some people are, are very mentally disturbed, but some mental illness can be seen as an extreme form of what I'm talking about an extreme form of, of identifying with things that don't, don't, are not real. Okay, so... We go until when, Michael? What time? Till, till 8? Okay. So what does this have to do with us here? I would say what I'm trying to do, and we'll go into this more as the retreat unfolds, is when we say, let's say, take your yogi job, and a, a show of hands, is anyone here who doesn't really like their yogi job but are doing it? Are there any honest people here? Show of hands. <laughs> we have one honest person in the whole crowd? Two. Do I hear three? Three, okay. Do you think I always love giving Dharma talks? No, I, I don't. But I have to do it? Is it time for you to give a talk? Okay, make up something for God's sake. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you're fortunate from a Dharma point of view. Lucky you that you have a job. I hope you hate the job. Did you get cleaning toilets or whatever it is? Because uh, our practice, for example, to link this up with everything that's been set up until now, when you're wholeheartedly, 100%, and with no strain, so this is something that grows naturally with doing. You can't make it happen. You can't force it. It's not because the forcing itself is artificial and sets you back. It, in fact, it's self. Self now wants to be perfect. Me wants to be the perfect not-self. Okay. When you're totally identified with, let's say, vacuuming, and not identified, totally attentive to it, uh, you're not uh, separated from the activity. Remember, the activity is not the suffering. Uh, then there's no me or mine. It's not that you're trying to banish me or mine, uh, and that notion about who you are. But if you're suffering, you might see, as we've seen here, people with one f uh, very well-known one, which I quote all the time, is an oral surgeon. I hope he's not back here tonight, but if he is, I think he would volunteer because he grew who was assigned cleaning the toilets and he rebelled refused to and we had to ask him say well then you have to leave the retreat and he said are you kidding that's not it's just cleaning the toilet say no our practice is about you notice the title of it the art of mindful living it's not just about sitting it's not just about formal practice it's wisdom is the art of living that's what this is about it's a wisdom path 
Sitting has a very, very special place. I am at places like IMS. The, everything that Michael spelled out, all the protections, the simplicity, you know. It's wonderful. And it's good to come to retreats of this sort. But if it's special in that sense. But if you make it too special and put it up on your mantle and then dip it in gold and worship it, and that becomes stands for the, your entire life, your spiritual life, let's say, you're going to suffer a lot because then you're going to go home from here and you'll be the same jerk. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more polite, a little bit more refined, a little kinder. You take out the garbage this time. First time you're asked, not the tenth. Uh, so... We're uh, w- the three of us teach at a center in Cambridge that's there. Not, it's not there by accident. Uh, we intentionally put it in the midst. It's between, if you know Cambridge, Central Square and Harvard Square. In a sense, very, very privileged, wonderful students and teach. You know, just people who have a, a, a really having a, a very interesting life, working hard, excited, and their parents on weekends. You know. And then you have people who have been very, very severely damaged. Not only poverty, but mental troubles. And our center is in that zone. And uh, what we're trying to accomplish is not to undermine what's going on here. It's to protect the contemplative practice, which is what we're mainly doing here, meaning a protected, uh, quiet life, simplified with the strength of all of us practicing together, which is infectious in a good way, and then bring that back into daily life in, uh, so that it isn't that, oh, now I've got to go back to daily life. I can't wait till my next retreat. Because most of our life is daily life. In fact, what we're trying to say is, this is daily life. There's nothing outside of daily life. Don't you have to go to the toilet here? Anyone have to skip that for five days? <laughs> well, we have stuff in the supply closet, but it, uh, this is, a, this is a, a place that, in this situation, correct action is being quiet, keeping your life simple, and following the rules so that all of us benefit. When we leave, okay, so that means when you take your yogi job, and that's why I think the staff... They haven't ever told me this, but people tell me the staff is very happy when we come here because the yogis snap to it and do their job. So I hope if you're rebellious now, you're not going to do it because I said you're going to do it. But don't do that. We're all grown-ups, right? <laughs> okay. Um, what, we're, uh, what we're encouraging you to do is when you do, let's say, vacuuming, let's say you're either neutral or you don't like it, could be even strongly don't like it. It's not simply that we're trying to be job efficient. Uh, keep the center clean, neat, and uh, get a lot of work for a minimum. Uh, it's not job efficiency program. Sure, we want the place to be clean. There's a deeper dimension. That is, if the activity, the activity in and of itself, including anything, if, if it isn't accompanied by a certain quality of mind, in our case, awareness and the interest in learning from what you're doing. For example, if you're vacuuming and there's a lot of resistance, uh, don't, you don't have to overpower the resistance. See just how much you don't like it. And in the seeing of it, 
because you'll find that it's me. I don't like this. Why did they give this to me? See if it's so. See if there's an, every time you're suffering, ask who's suffering. And I think you'll see that it's a, a made-up me that we believe in that's doing the suffering. Whether, or psychological suffering is what I'm talking about. So that what we're doing, we're in taking all the ordinary activities that make up life here. Uh, if we have in a much safer, more simpler environment, have the opportunity to put into practice uh, what, what's been said, all of what we've been teaching for a, a day at least, um, this is perhaps, we hope, helping you make the, the movement smoother so that, for example, typically talks like this are on the end of the retreat where it's called the integration talk. Some of you who have been here know that. That means first we do all this and now it's time to go home and then there are all these jokes about going back to the real world. To me, there's only one world and this, this is just as real as any other world because it's just life. That's prior to all these forms. These forms were invented. Do you think that it dropped from a cloud to sit and walk? And you know, We made it up. It's all made up. I learned it from a Korean master, and then we added something that I picked up in Japan, and Michael, you know, everyone we've learned from Burmese and Thai, and, and we've put it together and experimented and dropped this and added that. Uh, we made it up. It's, it's proven to be useful. We've benefited from it. Other people seem to. So it's not that it's worthless because it's made up, but it's, it's part of life. And then we leave here. Wouldn't it be nice if we don't have to, if we see we dread going back to where we're going back to, can we work with that as part of our practice? Practice is getting free. If you don't want to face life, how can you get free? Because that means you don't want to face fear. You don't want to face aversion. You don't want to face any of the things which are causing suffering. Will that free you from suffering? I haven't, I haven't seen it. So we're learning how to equip ourselves to see clearly and accurately so that, and we're starting in a simplified environment here, and hopefully some of the attitudes and ways of viewing things, and of course the skills, uh, in order for the mind to be washed, the brain to be washed clean, the quality of seeing has everything to do with that. When the mind sees clearly its own activity, it's no longer imprisoned by it. It's no longer in bondage to what it has created. It's seen for what it is. It's just a production, a secretion of the brain, which comes and goes and comes and goes. And they keep coming and going. And as that falls away, you find... Uh, the incredible magnitude of what, uh, as we move on in so-called interior journey, uh, that's a part of the constitution of every human being. It's not that just certain people have it. We all have it. So, in a sense, we have a choice. Uh, and the paradigm we're offering here is we're not throwing away what's good about uh, the rational mind, intellect, knowledge, all the things perhaps we've all been to school and learned, by all means. But it's not enough. I don't think you'd be here. You already must at some level know that. That there's something missing. And we're paying for it as a, as a race, the human race. Because we're, we're not seeing clearly. And as a result, the way we live is not proving to be satisfactory. So in our own tiny way, if you want world peace, start with yourself. 
If you're plagued by conflict and not at peace with yourself, it's not a crime, but you've come to the right place. This is where you, you, by facing it, learning how to see it, you see that it's workable, it's manageable. And you know why it's workable? And let's end with this and then we'll continue. It's workable because it's observable. If you can see it, then you're not helpless anymore. And we're learning how to refine that capacity to see. The, the seeing can become like a, a flame. And it just burns through all illusion. It just feels that way. That's the best language I can come up with. So, I hope the rabbi is not kept in the jail too long. And you're free now. You, you don't have to stay in this hall. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.